0: Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment. Like salt in a weakened broth, what you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating masse and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, You must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he, too, was someone journeyed through the night.
1: I remember last week that we ended talking about acts of kindness that somebody had done, even some moment, on some passing moment. Someone who said to me, the elevator at 72nd Street is at the end of the platform, so you can find the elevator with your suitcase. Some acts of kindness that people talked to each other about and then shared... Some were a momentary act of kindness that people remembered 5 and 10 and 20 years later. Some were astounding acts of kindness that saved a life. You know, the word for um, uh, metta, uh, uh, which gets often translated into English as loving-kindness, which is a peculiar word. I hope that they'll change it in my life lifetime. I hope they'll call it meta. Um, you know, call it the practice of metta. and people will understand that it's warm-hearted, impartial kindness. When you read that line, and I remember it, Naomi Shihab Nye's nice poem, I thought about somebody shared about the folks running around in in San Anselmo yesterday, and to see them with a sweet eye, you know that. They're not running around in, a, in any kind of a, a bad way. They're running around in the spirit of the season. And look at that. They're running around. That sudden awareness of, look at what people are doing. It's amazing. <laughs> Susan is the person that I quote most often about the practice of staying amazed. Uh, she ends all, you should have an email correspondence with her, because she ends all her emails, this is Susan, and she ends all her emails with the um, injunction to stay amazed. You know, and if we could be amazed, you know, I was thinking about when we did Modani before, my friend um, Meg Quigley, who died some long time ago now, maybe 10 years ago now, was a very big... Uh, ardent uh, practitioner at Spirit Rock very strong supporter of Spirit Rock Uh, she died of ovarian cancer her partner took very good and solicitous care of her she was sick for 11 years before she died but she died and uh, in the very end I was uh, with her Uh, one day I came to be with her a little bit and her her partner Judy said to me "Um, I don't know, she's been in kind of this coma-like state for a while now, I don't, I don't know what's, what this means. She's been sleeping longer and longer, and now she's been asleep all day. And so we sat there, and then uh, after a while she woke up and she opened her eyes and she was surprised. She said, oh, I'm back. <laughs> and uh, I thought of that when we did Modani, you know, that you open your eyes and say, I'm back. And uh, I said, did you think about that you weren't? She said, well, no, I, I just felt like I was very far away. So I said, well, did you see anything? You know what I mean? or you know, that, I mean, there were so many. You know. She said, do you mean did I see any tunnels with lights at the end or former ancestors? or?" I said, yeah, did you see any of that? She said, no, I was just fast asleep. She said, now I'm back. And, you know, that every day we get up, and now we're back. But we don't think that's such a big deal. But it's actually a big deal that you get up every morning. I think about that, especially now. um, Getting older, you know, you might not. I want to tell you something, but we're recording this, aren't we? That's fine. Because I would like people all over the world to know this. Uh, It's kind of a, uh, it's a solicitation, but for the whole world, I hope a lot of people listen. This magazine is one of the uh, editions of The Inquiring Mind. More than 30 years, The Inquiring Mind has been publishing two uh, magazines a year uh, that have uh, focused on different Dharma issues. They've done an amazing job, Barbara Gates and Wes Nisker for 30 years with a new and interesting and pithy magazine. And after 30 years, the uh, the print issue is now going to disappear. Uh-huh. It's just too hard to make the money because it's all been paid for <coughs> by donations. So Barbara Gates came to visit me and she brought me some old Inquiry Minds, which I'll pass around if you want to see them. In the very beginning, they were wonderful particularly wonderful because they have listings of Dharma groups and retreats all over the world. But now you can go online and find out about everything. So that's not as important as it used to be. But it is important to keep it available online. And it is important for them to be able, the people at Inquiring Mind have a a storage locker full of Inquiring Minds for these... 60 some issues of Inquiring Minds that they are trying to fund sending to uh, correctional institutions. And so I have handwritten letters that people write to them, but I'll read you the print version because it's a little easier. Dear Inquiring Mind, I am a lifer inmate housed at Valley State Prison in Chowchilla, California. I'm the coordinator of the Buddhist Sangha here at the prison, Karuna Valley Sangha. After reading an end or a new beginning in volume 30, number two, spring 2014, I became concerned that this vital piece of Buddhist journalism will cease to exist in printed form. Canceling your publication would deny all of us in California's 34 prisons the opportunity to read your journal. That is, hundreds, perhaps thousands of seekers in California alone will be left out in the cold. With ever-decreasing programs designed towards rehabilitation, our spiritual quest remains a constant. Buddhism is a viable tool for prisoners seeking a healthier path, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Please don't turn your backs on us. Bobby Bunderson, also known as Tenzin Yeshi, and his prison number, dear inquiring mind, I am without funds. I am an uh, I am an ADA listed, Americans with Disabilities Act listed inmate. Through your publications and the blessings of the Buddha, I am able to hear from various sanghas and keep upon my path and in my tonglen practice. Where would I be without the loving kindness of your publication to bring light into my prison setting, Feral Mickens, Corcoran State Prison. Dear Inquiring Mind, thanks for such a stimulating and informative publication. I hope you'll be able to continue offering a print edition. The digital world is not available to incarcerated persons. And it seems that this is a vital stream stream of dharma for some inmates. And on and on. Dear inquiry this is a list. Okay. Dear Inquiring Mind, your last issue on War and Peace might have been the best one since I became a reader. This type of thoughtful examination of our penchant for war is sorely needed, and I deeply regret your passing out of possible existence as a source for information. Both my parents served on active duty during World War II, and my husband was in the military under the first George Bush. None of my family praised war or industrial political machine that perpetrates it. Many patriots know that peace, not war, is the only way to secure a better future for ourselves and our planet. What this will, it will require it will remain online in a digital form. What they're hoping to do is have enough money, which really only means a few more thousand dollars, which isn't a lot to raise, to put a pile of these magazines in each of the libraries in each of the California state prisons so people will have access to it. So I'm hopeful that our class monitor will rush to the back and put a third basket out back there, and that as you go out, you think about a Christmas present. Uh, this week and next week, uh, I'll have that basket there. <coughs> and I told Barbara Gates I would do my best. So people listening to this on Dorma Seed, but have to know where to send it to. Um, they can look up the address from looking up uh, Inquiry Mind. And uh, look up Inquiry Mind magazine on, online, and you'll find the address to send the check. Uh, what can checks be made out to? Uh, Inquiry Mind magazine. And, it, uh, it, and it's tax deductible. And it is tax deductible. And it's the end of the year. Now is a yeah. good time to make a tax Here it is Inquiring Mind, Post Office Box. you know, ready? 9999, nine, nine, nine. <laughs> Berkeley, California, 94709. There you go. Thank you very much. While I was in New York, um, I, maybe I told you last week, while I was in New York, I went to the Women's Maximum Security Prison. Which I do every year when I'm there, and I uh, spent a, a couple of hours with the women who practice mindfulness, and they are always so excited to see me. Their their teacher, who's the chaplain in the in the in the prison, is also a rabbi, and a mindfulness teacher, and uh, they say, "I'm really happy that you're here," and. Uh, when I, when I say oh I'm, I'm glad to hear that why is that they say a certain amount of you're really funny and you tell good stories and that but they also say there is no peace of mind available here in this prison it's noisy the lights are on all the time you have to move between this time and that time there's no way that I can be free in this prison on the outside but I could be free on the inside and. Uh, I'm always very touched by them. Every time I'm there, I have a fleeting thought, maybe I should give up my career and start to go in prisons. I mean, but people are doing that already, so it's not for me to do. But I think, you know, it's just a different kind of imprisonment. We're all imprisoned with our mind, you know? Uh, Maybe when chef was teaching in a little while she will want to say, you go on retreat, everything is perfect here, except you take your mind with you. That's the problem, you know? (laughs) And every once in a while, in the gaps between profound concentration and the next profound concentration, your whole life rushes in and fills up your mind. So I wanted—I I, I want to teach a little bit on the topic, just pulling along the, the topic we've started, because I want Jeff to teach again. Did you enjoy that chanting? Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. that was a big one. Well, yeah. So we'll move that up that time. And maybe you want to ask us something about you want to ask for some questions about her life or whatever, or what else we've done together. Anyway, uh, we talk a lot together about practice and what the purpose of practice. What do we mean by practice, and what's the purpose of practice and where are we going? But the piece I want to advance a little bit is the piece that I started last week about uh, when we were thinking about uh, who we could think of who had done us small kindnesses. And we began to make a little list in the mind. I hope that you began to make a little list in the mind. This one and that one and that one. Shafa and I both had a teacher who uh, died last summer. And one of the... Te- at 90... And one of the teachings that he was known for is he said to people, whenever something happens, however small or large, but there's a moment that you're really glad for and it really brings delight to your mind, picks up your spirit, your soul. He said, don't just enjoy it. He said, enjoy it. He said, but make a deposit in the bank account of your mind uh." extraordinary gifts like, it's like if someone gave you a gift uh, that was a financial gift you'd make a deposit make a deposit in your mind he said someday you'll need to look in that box for a little pick-me-up a little sustenance so I've been thinking about that since last week that that that, that would be the kind of practice that would actually sustain um what we've been talking about, which is life is a challenge. And a challenge, as Jeff has said, get up in the morning and you think, ah, oh, what do I have to do today? Unless you think about, wow, well, hey, I got up again. Look at that. Here I am again, up. Um, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach... It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood all morning. I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a room with paintings on the wall and planned another day just like this one. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. So... That's Jane Kenyon, who died of cancer a few years ago. And in a certain way, we know that. We know that. But then this somehow is so perfectly said that you think, ding. You know what else I've been thinking about? You've been getting Christmas letters from people. So the Christmas letters. First of all, sometimes I get Christmas letters that say, we went here, we went... There. These are often not talking, certainly not critical. I'm happy to have Christmas letters from everybody. Uh, it's it's touching to me when I get a Christmas letter, we went here, we went there, we did this, we did that. And I also know that in their families some really very difficult things happen, but we don't tell that so much. We just tell, here we went, we saw the Grand Canyon, and we do this, and we did that. And not so much of the other things this is a Christmas letter we did this, we did that, we did here, we did there and uh, during the midsummer David had a stroke that suddenly struck these are friends of mine so there it is, and right in the middle we did this, we did that, and this happened and I'm thinking about the people that I I, that have been sending Christmas letters because I have been sending them greetings for 50 years or more Who's, who seemed like just yesterday they were saying, uh, we've, you know, our child has been born, our grandchild has been born, now they're having a stroke, you know. And you, if you pay attention to the Christmas letters, it's the macro level of paying attention. Somebody sent me a season's greeting the other day that was a, a little portfolio. He said, as you know, I'm a great archivist, so I've been send, I've been saving all the cards that I've gotten from everybody over the years. So now I'm returning the ones that have come from your family. And here's a whole pile of my family over the years. So in case I wasn't, you know, one of the, this is probably the right time to tell the story about, why am I telling this story? That's a good story, but it gets to where I want to be. My husband and I moved away from our family, our families of origin. Right after we married, we moved to Kansas and then we moved to California. And in those days, that was kind of a long distance and people did not fly back and forth. So for most of the large numbers of aunts and uncles that we had grown up with and that had been at our wedding, we were the children who had gone away and gotten married and then began to have children who grew up. And every year for Rosh Hashanah, it's the new year, I would take a picture of all of us and have them printed and put them in envelopes and address them to this whole list of people. And I, I had it in mind all summer to remember to do it in time. And one year I was late, and then I finally I got everybody together and we took the picture. By this time we have grandchildren in the picture. And I take the pictures to be developed and they, in the days that you did that. And I get the pictures developed, and I'm looking at them, and I pick out, this is the best. And the uh, person said, so I, I need to make cards out of them. said, how many do you need? And I realized that all the aunts and uncles had died. All that whole vast number of people, you know. And it's not like I didn't know that they died and it occurred, but they didn't all die at the same moment. This one died, that one died, this one died, this one died. So maybe out of a former 30 or 40 cards, maybe I had 10 cards to send. So I'm a little sheepish. I've just run in there and hurried up with this. But it, like, escaped my vision that time passed and they passed. One of the things that the Buddha taught. The other thing that I wanted to talk about today, and then I want to bring up because it's going to tie into what I want Shepard to teach about, is the is my awareness that the teaching of Dharma has definitely changed over the last thirty five years. Dharma teaching in the West, um, I think it's I, I, it's all wonderful. It's all it was wonderful and it is wonderful. And I think what what's happened is that. <laughs> there has been a change of emphasis from um seeing that uh seeing the uh intellect as the path to liberation to seeing the heart as the path to liberation the book by john McCrasky, McCra- McCransky uh that I talked about last week is called um Awakening through love, through love. The book by Lama Surya Das that I have now in um, manuscript form is uh, is called. Actually, he starts by telling the riddle that um, that's part of uh, Buddhist lore. Now, Uh, it's the answer to the title of the book is the answer to the question: What did the Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? Do you know? Make me one with everything. Yeah. So the, the the so the definitely I think that the emphasis has changed from may I transcend this life to may I be really connected deeply to this life. And there's a way in which I can understand that they're not mutually uh, exclusive. I could actually say that they're both perfectly um, viable paths. I when I began to teach, uh, this is the now, what everything I say now is a is a personal perspective in my personal experience, and I might be wrong, not about my experience, but about the conclusion that I'm going to make about that. I think that the Dharma that I got taught in the mid-70s, 1970s, was the Dharma that my teachers brought back from studying in Asia with their teachers who were monastics, all of them, so and who came out of uh, that particular culture uh, that has a different premise in the meditation practice uh, than I think is the Zeitgeist premise in the Western world. Anyway, here came these teachings, and the <coughs> fundamental understanding was, as I understood it, is I would practice mindfulness which is the moment-to-moment awareness of phenomena arising and passing away in a non-coercive way, not um, insisting it be other than it is. May I meet this moment fully? And that through practicing that, I would come to understand in an immediacy I hadn't understood before, (coughs) the ephemeral nature of all things, that everything doesn't last, that I would come to understand... That everything is contingent with everything else, that nothing happens in a vacuum, that there is a cause to everything, and that everything has, um, everything has sequelae, which are all, first of all, true, and second of all, splendid teachings, because they're really wake-ups about, really think about what you do, because you don't know. The person who said, how are you, to the unhappy teenager, probably changed her life, saved her life, or- I'm purposely not indicating who it is. Uh, So they're very, very wonderful teachings. Whether that particular path of um, noticing that um, uh, interfering with the flow of phenomena insisting that things be different from how they are. It's true that if we insist that things be different from how they are, the imperative that things be different from how they are is suffering. That's what's suffering. Mm -hmm. I think what's happened is that there's been a shift towards a more warm-hearted and a more uh, outer-oriented practice to things like we do hope that things will be different from how they are. We do understand that things can change, that things being contingent on other things, that if we change our hearts, we can change the hearts of the people around us and maybe the world, that uh, really if we see in our own minds how we continually churn up suffering for ourselves when we insist that things be different from how they are or when we refuse to see how things are, that it moves us to compassion about how we make problems for ourselves and other people as well. I saw A Delicate Balance, the Albie play in New York, and mostly, you know, Albie is so hard to to really, you can't get comfortable in an Albie play. But there's one line where the heroine, where um, Glenn Close says in a kind of a speculative moment, she says, I think we spend our whole lives making things worse for ourselves. And it's something, I maybe didn't do that exactly right, but that's about what she says. And I thought I looked around to see if I had a pencil, because that's the kind of thing that I like to write down in theaters and uh but that that really was the whole that's the communication unless we're awake, we do spend our lives unnecessarily making it worse for ourselves. but it was more a practice of the intellect that when I understand, I'll stop grasping. I understand that things are ephemeral, I won't insist that they stay, and I understand that things are. That's, that grasping is suffering, I'll stop grasping. I think my, myself that the, 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 um, those insights serve as a springboard for compassion, and that compassion is actually the healing element. And I think also that it's possible to start practice without the insight those particular insights without that particular path of practice and have compassion be the path of practice and love be the path of practice and have that practice deliver the same insights. I actually wrote that a long time ago, so it's not a new thing. In the book that I wrote about the paramitas, uh, pay attention for goodness sake, I said, if you paid attention, you could arrive at wisdom, you could have insight, you could have wisdom, and then you would be kind and compassionate because of the insight. And I said, well, why can't you start at the other end? I'll be kind and compassionate, and in being uniformly kind and compassionate, I'll have all this insight because it'll be clear to me how much the world is suffering and needs kindness and compassion. And over the last 10 years, for sure, uh, metta has gone from being a a practice that people did at the end of retreats in the last 15 minutes, (laughs) before leaving the retreat center, to being something that we devoted a whole week or two weeks of the year to just doing metta practice, to being a practice that is now interpolated into all mindfulness retreats that we teach here at Spirit Rock, to, I hope, in my lifetime, morphing into an understanding that every moment of mindfulness is a moment of compassion, that a moment that you do not make, any moment that you actually meet without coercing it or trying to get it to be different is already a compassionate act for yourself, that you haven't made things difficult for yourself. So I, I tell people on my tombstone, they can write down, Sylvia said, mindfulness is the same as metta. And that metta practice is is also mindfulness practice. You can't just be sitting, may I be happy, may you be happy, da da. da, 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 da. You have to be awake, you have to be in touch with What's happening is I think that phrase, what is happening to me, So I make that hope, what is happening to me, what changes for me as I make that? The other big change, and this is where Shepha comes in, the other big change is the interest in really emphasizing the awareness that now is the only moment in which anything happens. And a very big interest in Eckhart Tolle, very big interest in the teachings of Adyashanti, very big interest in the teachings of Byron Katie, whose principal teaching is loving what is. And you think, well, what do you mean? I don't love everything that is, but how about not being, I think what it means, is not being in any kind of um, adversarial uh, relationship with what happens. That not everything that happens is something that I want but to be able to say, this is what's happening. Okay, now what? Gil says that his principal practice of equanimity is, um, this is what's happening. Let's see what happens next. I think it's got a third part. This is what's happening. Let's see what happens next, and what can I do? What can I bring to the situation? I think that that completes that cycle. And that particular that particular admonition, that particular teaching, this is what's happening uh and you know even to think well, yeah but 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 it shouldn't be it is happening this is what's happening not to be in an adversarial situation that being in an adversarial relationship with anything that happens clouds the mind that fighting with things is the source of all uh clouding in the mind all the uh, afflictive tendencies getting bored getting irritable getting lustful getting this it's because we we're uncomfortable in some way and the mind does all those other things Mm -hmm. how can we say oh I'm really bored sweetheart you're bored that's okay relax that's what's happening boredom relax you're sleepy okay just don't fall over Relax. How many? I think I absolutely have it down. I can sleep in the front even of a whole room, and so far I didn't fall down. But plenty of times I wake up and I think to myself, Wow, I was asleep. I wonder how long that was happening. But you know, that's it happens. People sitting in front of me fall asleep. Watch it, fall asleep. People fall asleep. Or I plan Thanksgiving dinner or something else. But, you know, I, I don't have the deep samadhi every second. I open my eyes, I look around, I see how other people are. I think the name of the game is not to be disturbed by what's going on. In the middle, I have some thought about something or other. It's, if I notice it, I think to myself, well, oh, you'll do that later. Let's just, uh, I'll think about the woman who said there's a, an elevator on the 72nd Street station. Or I'll think about something else, but I'll make a choice. There's a fork in the road every minute. Yeah. And that really is the meaning of what the Buddha taught in wise message, in wise effort. So I was going to ask Shepha to teach a little bit about our, the practice that she understands of being in this moment, because there's only this moment. Do you want to do that? Sure. All right, I can do this.
2: It's so fun to be here with you. (laughs) Um,
1: We haven't done this in a long time. I know, I know. It's (laughs) fun.
2: Um, Sylvia Sylvia and I, for five years, we taught um, meditation retreats together where um, Sylvia would describe a a mind state, and I would say, oh, and I know how to get there. (laughs) And I would introduce a chant practice in order to find our way to what she had just taught about. And then we sat in that place, and it was a, a wonderful retreat. I was, um, I was telling uh, Sylvia a little bit this, about my path to the rabbinate. Of, I had a, a, real, a deep calling in me to spiritual leadership, and then I remembered I was Jewish, so I... <laughs> So I applied to rabbinical school, and uh, I did a kind of a, you know, crash course before I got to the interview and everything that they might want to hear at this interview. And I sat around a very long table with with the committee, and at the other side of the table was the president of the rabbinical school, which was who was a very renowned scholar, and I had read all his his books and was, you know, pretty um, honored to even just to be in his presence, but he, he threw me with a, a, a question um, that I hadn't expected, hadn't prepared for. He said, how do we know that after you go, to rabbinic, go through all of this rabbinical school, and it's a very long training, how do we know that you're not going to come out of the school and start your own religion? And um, so, the outside of me, I was um, really trying to give a, a good answer, and I was um, appropriately indignant <laughs> about uh, my my dedication to you know this this path and my inheritance and its evolving nature and wanting to be a part of that. Um, but inwardly, I was saying to myself, hmm. <laughs> What would that, what would that be if I was going to start a religion? What would it be? And it sort of planted this little seed in me.
1: Little did he know, So he was trying to protect <laughs> <Right>. you.
2: <laughs> so, so, it very, very quickly, it, it uh, this this kind of secret religion um, began to emerge inside me. Um, and it was I called it uh, the religion. Of Zeh. Uh, Zeh in Hebrew means this. This this one, and um, so the the religion of Zeh, I'll just tell tell uh, um, a story from uh, from my tradition. Talks about uh, Jacob uh, on his journey as he leaves. Uh, he's leaving. You know, he's running away from one life. He's going to seek a new life. He stops and he has a wonderful dream of angels going up and down a ladder. And then he, he wakes up and he has a, a, a moment, a, a moment of realization. And he says, God, the ultimate reality, was in this place and I, I didn't know it. It was here all along. And, and he says, he says, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I have been searching everywhere. I have been, you know, going, you know, just to the ends of the earth and the ends of the, my consciousness to try to find it. And it was here all along. Mm-hmm. This is the house of God. This is the place where God dwells. And also, this is the gate of heaven. If I come into this fully, it will be the entranceway to all other realms, but i have to I have to return to this, and uh, it sounds so simple <laughs> um, but it is um, you know it 's sort of turned into m- my secret religion and which is maybe everyone 's secret religion is that we 're all trying to come home to ho- to come home to uh, the truth that was in us all along, to to the to the love that is sort of buried underneath all of our neuroses and anxieties, and uh, which is that that very co- that core place of of this. So when I um, discovered a, a text called the Song of Songs, mm-hmm. which is a text that's all about love. I found this, uh, this one line in it that said, this is my beloved, and this is my friend. And I thought, oh, this is, this is the, the maybe the core text of my, of my secret tradition here. Um, if, if I can not necessarily like, but fall in love with this. Falling in love is, is really different. Falling in love means to come into the full presence and relationship with what is. It's showing. It's totally showing up. Mm-hmm. That's what, what it means to have this moment be my beloved. And uh, to befriend this moment and to say, I'm not going to have an argument here with this because I know I'm going to lose this argument. Mm-hmm. Because I've tried this before, and I know it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, is there another path that I can choose of a uh, of a kind of a a friend a friendship of making friends with what with what is even in the midst of my you know my preferences being otherwise? <laughs> can I be here for it? And um, it's a a practice in um, in Judaism. We call it tshuva which means return, which is this great understanding that, it's, that the practice is returning. It's not about being there or living there. It's about getting lost and returning, getting lost and returning. And every time we return, we don't return to the same place. We return even deeper because our, the strength of our commitment grows through that. Turning. So that is all to introduce you to this, this phrase that I thought we might use uh, as a practice this morning. And uh, that's a do di. You can say that. Zhe do dize, yeah. V-z-a- v-z-a- re-i. V-z-a- re-i. Yeah, zé do di. This is my beloved. And um, what's wonderful about the practice of chant is that it's an embodiment of a truth. It's not a talking about something. It's that when I say these sacred words, they come and live inside me and begin to work their magic and uh, open the doors that I've been waiting to go through all my life. Mm. And uh, the, that that door to um, to acceptance, to love, to presence, to uh, relationship, really. Do you want to add anything to
1: that? I, mean, I think peace and ease, you know. When you're home, you're home. You're home. When you're home, you're home. I, you know, as you were teaching, I was thinking of the line for, for a line from Psalms, which said, "One thing I want, and one thing I ask for, to live in God's house forever." And I always think of that as well. About how would it be to live in God's house? Take your shoes off and relax. And you're at you're at ease. Yeah. And I also think to myself when I th- teach that. I have to put in the part about what if God came to visit and I wasn't there. So I really keep in <laughs> mind right, right, that right. even when I chant, I shouldn't do it in a da 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 rote way, but I should actually expect to feel different. Right. I think if you expect to feel different, you feel different.
2: And every time you say that word, ze, you, you, the, the, you return to this, what the, what, exactly what this is. In all of its dimensions and all of its fullness, and um, and every time you say the word dodi, you let something in your heart relax and open and connect in love. And every time you say the word rei, you have in you th- that that sense of being, being befriended, right? and. Uh, kind of the, the, the sweetness of that possibility that each moment can can be that return that homecoming So I want to try it. Z yes. yeah. the words again. Ze dodi. Ze dodi. Ve ze Ze Is that Z A Z? Or Z E H like Z E H So inhabit each word and let it bring you home. where metta and mindfulness meet
1: As I was sitting, it came to my mind. There was a time a couple of years ago when we were talking with each other uh, uh, here over several weeks about the question, um, what would happen if you sat down (coughs) next to somebody on the Muni bus and you asked them, what do you do to keep your heart afloat? And remember we talked about that a while back And first of all, people find that funny because they think if I said that on a Muni bus to somebody, they'd get up and change their seat. (laughs) But there's a certain number of things that we know to do that keeps our spirits up. And as we were doing that, and I was feeling a change in myself, I was was thinking, how did you feel, by the way, when you were doing that? Uh Uplifting. Music Music is definitely one of those things. Music is one of those things, you know. There was a line that Sheffa said that I think is very, very, very important. That I, I, I want to reprise next week. That behind the story of our everyday stuff, this one needs. You know, I have to re- answer that email. I have to get that done. He said this about me. My brother-in-law is sick. Da da da. da. Behind that is really an awareness that life is really glorious. What an amazing thing that we're alive. Really. And that if we can lift up our minds a little bit with a chant, with a thought, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, is a quieter way of just really uh, making friends with all that stuff. My brother-in-law's sickness and the this and the that, so I'm not, ah, But I get up and I even know all those stuff and I don't fight with it. So it doesn't preoccupy my mind and it doesn't um, crimp it up, you know. I've been thinking about, this is way too homely an a, a analogy, but, you know, if someone puts a piece of a saran wrap in front of you and it's not crinkled, uh, you can really see what's behind it. And if it's all crinkled up, you don't get a good image. And I think about the mind being a little bit like saran wrap. And uh, all these things, my brother-in-law and his sickness and my this and my that and my that and my that, they're all there. And they, the, in, in an untrained mind, we crinkle it up. because oh, goodness, oh, goodness, oh, look at that, oh, I need that. And it's a startle that crinkle, crinkles it up. Otherwise, you say, wow, look at my life. It's so full of stuff. That's amazing. And I'll just do that. And it's also full of wonderful stuff, too. I'll do that, too. So how to keep the saran wrap from crinkling. It's a good name for a book or something. <laughs> but... So first of all, thank you very much, dear, for coming. Really very nice Thank you. Uh, very fortuitous that you just finished that retreat yesterday. And I hope that everybody here has something to do tomorrow or some way to spend tomorrow yeah. that's meaningful to you. Today is the last day of Hanukkah, and really back-to-back back with the last day of Hanukkah and Christmas Eve. Ta-da! They don't have, even have any break between... <laughs> so, uh, it's the last day of Hanukkah. It's uh, the uh, we've just had the darkest moment in the we've had the new moon in the uh, in the on the solstice. So that's a very that's a very phenomenal thing. You don't usually have the new moon on the solstice. So in case that means something terrific, may it mean something terrific. <laughs> Anything that you impute stuff to. So I was going to read you from John McCransky, but. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll see. It's one sentence if I if it's right here. Now, I don't see that, but I'm going to read you this. <coughs> a wonderful scene in the movie Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets illustrates our situation. In a duel with another young wizard, or snake is hurled at Harry Potter. The snake barring its fin bangs, hisses, menacingly at the children. Suddenly, Harry makes strange hissing sounds that the snake seems to understand, causing him to retreat. Harry thinks he spoke English, telling the snake not to harm anyone. But Harry's friends later inform him to a surprise that he was actually speaking snake, a language normally incomprehensible to human beings. Harry is stunned. How can I speak a language I didn't know I could speak, he asks. Similarly, John McCransky says... The language of love and wisdom deep down is a language that we already know. We have a hidden capacity to speak an intuitive language that communicates with others' hearts and minds below the radar of self-concerned thinking. If we learn to let our innate pure awareness come into self-recognition, thoroughly sense its own empty, cognizant, and limitless nature, we can stabilize that recognition. There you go. That's what we'll talk about for a while, that it's right there and you can see it.
2: Unself
3: conscious.
1: Unself conscious. There was talk about uh, that the, uh, in the 14th picture in the uh, ox herding uh, lessons is that the person having chased the ox of wisdom and discovered it and tamed the ox comes back and sits in the town square and plays the musical instrument and sings and is a plain person so why don't you make a blessing for everybody that I I normally say, So, let's have the can you read Sam? You make a blessing loud for everybody and then I'll ring this. May you in the week, da da da, you're a major blesser go ahead <laughs>
2: awareness in us grow and grow. May we all be connected to the wisdom of our own hearts. Mm -hmm.
1: With you we could say Amen.
2: (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please
3: visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.